Well, good morning. Good morning. So if we open back up to Matthew chapter 24, we're slowly and steadily making our way through this chapter. It's got some deep stuff in it. It's not, a, not an easy subject to be able to dissect appropriately when you're talking about the destruction of a people and the ending of a world. So something that uh, obviously is very deep and heady. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're going through it and trying to hopefully maybe explain and enlighten in such a way that we can kind of understand this a little bit better. I know that throughout the years of studying and reading 23, 24, 25, um, there's always been things within it that have, have kind of been, you know, a theological head scratcher um, that you're, you're looking at trying to figure out exactly what he is trying to convey in this message. Obviously, it's something vastly important, not only because it's written in the Word of God, but because Jesus is saying it. Um, and as we have been talking through this entire series for the last two years, you know, the letters written in red are the things that we are following and professing that we believe in and are exampling in our lives. And so um, when he's teaching this to his disciples, it's very important for us to really get a good grasp on what he's talking about. Um, the same could be said all the way throughout any chapter, any book of the Bible. Um, and some obviously are a little easier to, to crack open than others. Uh, Revelation is still a book of the Bible that is a really important one. And in fact, it even says in there, hey, this is an important one. You might want to take notice to it. Of course, then we go on for so many 22 chapters worth of, uh, okay, I, I get it, maybe. Um, I think there's a beast with some seven heads, not sure what it means. So this stuff can be a little bit problematic with our mortal brains to kind of wrap around, but it is worth the time and it is worth the effort. Um, so here, when we get to chapter 24, last week we talked about verse 15 through verse 28, um, and in that, and we'll read it again just for context so we'll know. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 28 says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are with child in that day and to those who are nursing in those days. But pray you that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall, the great, shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should have been shortened, there would no flesh have been saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they say... Unto you, behold, he is in the desert or the wilderness. Go not forth. Behold, he is in a secret chamber. Believe it not. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles or the vultures be gathered together. So that was the section of scripture that we looked at last week, and we kind of 
condense and squashed and, and jumped through it. And so I want to make sure we pull out some highlights from it before we proceed into the next section. Notice again what he has talked about here. There is going to be this time, this tribulation time that comes after you see this abomination that makes desolate established in what is conceived to be the temple area, the holy place. Okay? This is an ongoing recurring trend with the nation of Israel. We noticed last week when we go back to the book of Daniel and you read in chapters 9 and chapters 11, you'll have that kind of phrase talk about the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate, okay, um, come up multiple times, okay? In Matthew, I mean, in Daniel chapter 9 in particular, he ties it to the Messiah. He talks about the Messiah coming around this time of the abomination that makes desolate. In chapter 11, he speaks at something that most people will kind of interpret as being a more proximal um, revelation, which was back in, 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 one, in 156 BC um, when you had the Greek guy, who I last time said Roman guy, um, but the Greek guy throw up his statue in the temple. That was the first kind of heralding of the abomination of desolation, which basically they destroyed the Sabbath service. They erected this pagan idol. And, you know, the rest is history, so they say. Then you fast forward and you have in AD 70, around the time of AD 70, 66 to 70, when you had the rebellion of the Jews against the Roman authorities, okay, you had a guy named Titus who was a commander in that area, and he was the one that was kind of running the, the siege of Jerusalem that began from 66 to 70. During that time, you had Roman soldiers who put the eagle, which was technically the Roman eagle, but the Roman eagle was the eagle of Jupiter, um, one of their gods. And so you had them put that up on one of the corners or on the mantle of the temple mount. And so, again, there's some historical stuff with this that you're, you're kind of going off of Josephus' accounts and others. And so, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly 100% what happened. Was that what he's talking about here? It's, it's hard to ever make a one-to-one -one correlation, okay? But that is kind of the perceived historical context to what this is speaking of. And it is interesting because around the time that that was going on, then you had this siege of Jerusalem and you had this woe and this tribulation that Josephus will talk about in his historical accounts that was unlike anything that's ever happened before. You had, you know, awful monstrosities happening that it got so... Uh, the, the starvation was so bad during the siege that, you know, people were eating their own children. So, I mean, that's how awful this got, okay? So, there's definitely this period that Jesus is heralding for them that, you know, it kind of happened. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the leveling of the temple, the, the horrible atrocities that went on during the siege, all these things that happened, I mean, they, they do kind of tie back to what they're talking about here, okay? And it was kind of heralded by this event where this pagan symbol was established in the holy areas, okay? Now, what I always found interesting as I've kind of circled back around with this is, you know, that abomination that makes desolate, actually has come up more than one time even before Daniel's prophecy. Daniel is sitting in Babylon. He is there in captivity because of the abominations that made desolate in Israel that went on before that. Remember, Israel set up Baal worship in the temple. Okay, um, So they had already, this, this is an ongoing theme with them. The profaning of the holy places of God is something that has come up over and over and over again through, Jerusalem, through history with the Israelites in Jerusalem. And what's funny is, is that it's kind of the thing. 
It's like the thing, the, the, the moment, the time when you know, hey, guess what? Something's bad is about to happen to these Jews, okay? So here, Jesus brings it up again. Would have been in historical context, and for those who had a long enough historical memory, would have been a thing that they should have remembered. I mean, like, you know what? This just seems to be a recurring theme for us. <laughs> you know, every time the temple starts getting out of whack, okay, the religious leaders start getting off the rails, and all of a sudden you've got pagan worship start being set up beside the temple. Bad things happen in Jerusalem, okay? So here you see it again, and Jesus has warned them. So you, there's, there's a couple of things with it that are very beautiful in all of this chaos, we talked about it last time when we were looking at the, at the previous section of Scripture, the first 14 verses. You know, you're looking at all this bad stuff Jesus has prophesied, and you're going, man, this is not the Sunday service sermon I want to hear about how everything is going to be woe and destruction, and the world's burning to the ground, and good luck, and good night, you know, and all this stuff. But in the middle of that, we noted where Jesus said, yeah, but I want you to notice how the gospel is going to be preached to every nation. It's going to continue. I know it looks bad, but I promise you it's not going to end here. Okay? Here in this section, you have another silver lining there where Jesus says, look, it's going to be bad. Tribulation worse than you've ever seen. It's going to be a total annihilation in Jerusalem. But I want you to note that I warned you. When you see the abomination of desolation set up, that's your moment. Take notice. Flee from Judea. Okay? And we talked about how this is a proximal interpretation. There's a lot of proximal things that are going on here that are going to be fulfilled in AD 70. Okay? And we spoke about the fact that you can't flee from Judea in America. All right? And that's not like spiritual Judea. He's speaking about a natural, close proximity event that's going to happen. That he's telling his believers, hey, when you see this thing set up in the temple, you need to run for the hills, guys. Okay? And so that is a very proximal now interpretation that would have been within the generation that he is preaching to. Okay? And so there's, some again, some proximity to that. Now, in just a second, we're going to talk about some things that kind of are proximal, but also are very distal in their interpretation. The second thing, though, that we really wanted to grab out of this, and again, that other silver lining, is you catch in a couple of verses, he'll say, number one, that I've preserved the elect people, the remnant that I'm saving out of Israel. I have preserved them physically from destruction. Okay, He says that except those days would have been shortened, or cut short, as Paul talks about in Romans 9. He says, unless those days would have been cut short, because a short work the Lord will do on the earth, unless those days had been cut short, no one would have survived. We would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Jews, in recounting the events, in speaking in kind of prophetic ways of the events that were going to happen here in AD 70, but also in former times, he says, look, if God had not been gracious to his elect remnant that he purposefully delivered out of this, he said, no one would have been left alive. I think that, again, is a testimony to God's blessed, almighty, sovereign graciousness, okay, that is repeated throughout all the existence of humanity. Again, you go way back to the very beginning. Unless God had preserved his people, there would be no more people on the earth. Okay? That's, that's the theme throughout all of eternity. Unless God had preserved his people, guess what? Everyone's in hell. 
Unless God had preserved his people, guess what? No one's on the ark, okay? Everybody's gone. In Sodom and Gomorrah, unless he had preserved his people lot and delivered them out of them, guess what? No one would have been in, left alive that came from that city, okay? So over and over and over again, even when you see the captivity of Israel in Babylon, okay? That one just kind of subset group that he's looking at with the Babylonian captivity. When you go back and you read the accounts, not everyone was taken into captivity, were they? There were the poor the needy, the fatherless, the widows, the ones that Israel had thumbed their nose at and supplanted and persecuted and ignored, the very ones that God, as we have looked through the Pentateuch and looked through Deuteronomy, we talked about how God set up his holy society to specifically care for these people, and the Israelites completely ignored that. They got so way off course that those were the people they were like, you know what? Instead of protecting them, I'm going to extort them. Instead of suppl uh, supplying them for their need, I'm going to cast them down to the side and ignore them. The very people that God said, it is expressly commanded that you take care of these people. They looked at God and said, I don't care. I don't want to. I would rather make my own money. I care about my own self. I want my own provisions. Get out of my garden that I tilled and I hoed. You can't have any. All of those things that God had told them to do, they specifically and flagrantly disobeyed God and oppressed those people. And God said, okay, you're going to Babylon. And guess who's going to get all your land? The people who you ignored. The very ones you were commanded to take care of. I'm sending you to captivity. I'm killing a lot of you. And I'm going to leave this land for all those who are left. They're going to walk into your house. They're going to eat off your grapes. They're going to enjoy your good stuff because you didn't do what I told you to do. So all throughout you get this kind of picture where God will preserve his people, will preserve his elect remnant that he has in there, and the other ones he has sent off. Okay, so in, in this too, he gives the same kind of picture. He says, I, unless I had shortened my days, unless I had cut the work short, unless I had ended it at a point, unless I had warned you and commanded you, get out of here. Unless all these things happened, there would nobody be left. I would have wiped you all out. But because of my graciousness, because of my electing and my sovereignty and my choosing, I have chosen not to do so. And I have chosen a remnant out of Israel that will be saved. I have chosen to deliver a group and not destroy everybody. Okay? We see this too, and that's a verse that probably everybody is familiar with. You remember how in Romans chapter 11 and also back in, in um, 1 Kings where it actually came from, you know, Elijah is talking about the situation, about the captivity, about the sieges and all this stuff with Israel. And Paul in Romans and then, you know, Elijah back in when we're talking about it in 1 Kings makes the point that God said that I have left to myself 7,000 people who have not bowed down the knee to Baal, okay? And left to himself is kind of like if you're making cookies, okay? But you left like five cookies over to the side for yourself. You give the other ones to your neighbors, but you left five to yourself. It's not that he left them like I just left them to their own natural devices and they figured this out. He left them to the side as in I was making a batch of cookies and I left five over here for myself because I want to eat them later. Okay, So with the 7,000 to Baal, he left or preserved 7,000 over here for himself. Okay, Just like here he's saying, 
I preserved my elect, my remnant out of Israel and delivered them that they weren't destroyed by the destruction that I put in place on Israel and on Jerusalem in AD 70 because my work in that day was a righteous judgment against a wicked, unbelieving people who I had given everything to. And when I sent their Messiah to them, they looked at him and said, I hate you, I don't believe in you, and I'm going to kill you. Okay, So that's the layout that you have here. So he preserves them naturally in that way. He also he preserves them from a, in, in the second way, from a spiritual corruption. Okay, He says, if it were even possible that these false prophets, false Christ, could deceive the elect. He said, if it were possible, they're so convincing. They're going to be so convincing to these Israelites that they are going to corrupt and convince a lot of people that they are the Christ. But he's saying it was not even possible, okay, to, con- to convert the elect in this way. He says, I'm preserving them, probably because they had to be preserved for the, for the sake of the church continuing. But he says, I'm going to put a spiritual protection on them. I'm going to preserve them. I'm going to make them. I, in one way he did it, he warned them. He said, look, I'm telling you, this is going to happen. All right. So we look at this and we go, well, what can we glean from this? Because obviously there's some things in this that are very much just related to the Israel's Israelites from AD 30 to AD 70. Okay. But what I want you to realize is that if God is doing this for his elect here, don't you think he'll do that for us? Don't you think he would do that? Aren't there promises throughout the entire book of Proverbs and Psalms and over and over again where he says, I'm going to take care of you? Haven't we been reading for the last two years where Jesus will constantly come back and say, if you will just trust in me, I'm going to take care of you. If you will just seek the kingdom of God, I've told you I'll take care of all these things. I will take care of you. I will preserve you. I will protect you. I take care of birds. Don't you think I care a little bit more about you? Do we not see this same theme played out throughout all of Scripture? So when we're looking at all these themes and then we're looking at these examples, we just have to kind of go, I think God's got me. I think he's taking care of me. I don't know why the situations happen that they do, but I think he's got me pretty good. I think he's going to protect me. Am I going to be free from any kind of harm, danger, or issues in my life? No. But I think he's got me. I think he's still taking care of me. I bet when those uh, preserved elect that maybe they didn't get destroyed during the AD 70 siege, but man, if they were walking up the hills on the way out of Judea and tripped and fell and hit their head and died of a concussion... That could have happened. Who knows? He still protected them, right? They're still taken care of. Things still happen. Bad things still happen while we're in this world. In fact, Jesus said, I'm, I'm telling you this. It's going to happen. Well, God, how do we square that? How do we square that? That you're telling me that you're going to preserve me and provide for me and take care of me. And that should mean that my life is all health, wealth, and prosperity. Yet you tell me over here, I'm going to have tribulations. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. I mean, in the last section, we looked at the first 14 verses. He's going, look, guys, some of y'all are going to be delivered up to synagogues and beaten. Some of y'all are going to be crucified. Some of you are going to be killed. Some of you are going to be fed to lions. I'm preserving you. I'm protecting you. I'm taking care of you. Seek the kingdom first. I will give you all these. I mean, you look at that and you go, 
it is really hard to square this. It is really hard to mesh these things together. But I think what you get the picture of, especially if you go back into the, into the Proverbs and you go back into the Psalms, you see these situations over and over and over again. Where, yes, most certainly, and I can tell you, you know, it, it, compared to a lot of lives, I would look at my life and go, you know what? I really have not had that rough of a go at it, okay? I mean, when you look at some people's lives and you think to see the things they've gone through and you've gone and you've witnessed the issues they've had and the problems that they've faced and the stuff that they have gone through, you could look at it and go, you know what? I really had never been there, okay? I can, I can sympathize with you most certainly, but there are some things I cannot empathize with you about because I just haven't done it. Now, again, there's a reversal of that. There's some things that probably I've been through that you haven't, that we could, we could commiserate on those same levels, okay? But in all in all, I can look back to my life and go, you know, I really haven't hadn't had it that bad. Haven't had a lot of bad, bad tragedies happen in my life. And, you know, knock on wood, it won't, now I know knocking on wood is probably not the most theologically biblical thing to do. But, um, you know, you, hopefully that's not going to be my story. Hopefully the rest of my life I can enjoy the blessed, you know, protection and peace that God has given me. But that's not everybody's story. That's not everybody's situation. You know, it's this crazy thing, and I know it's hard for us to understand, but it's this crazy thing. You know that each of our lives are unique and different. You know each of our gifts are unique and different. Each of our stories are unique and different. Each of our lives as they play out in God's hands are unique and different. Some people go through trials of illness. That others don't. Some people go through trials of loss. That others don't. Some people go through issues of. I mean you could go through the list. Some people lose their children. Some people don't. Some people never have children. Some people get divorced. Some people don't. Some people die. Some people don't. There's over and over and over again. Traumas and tribulations that go through people's lives. That the marriage wasn't the happiest that it always went to be. The kids weren't the greatest that they always meant to be. The kids died. The kids lived. I died. You. There's all sorts of variation in the things that go on. In this wicked, corrupt world that we live in. But you know what's interesting to me is that even in all that, even as you may suffer, what God calls us to in Proverbs and Psalms is this refining grace that he puts in our lives. And that's the only way that I can think of it, a refining grace. Because when he talks about it in Proverbs and Psalms and those places, he will speak of it in the instance of like gold being refined. And the process to refine gold is not that you take it out and polish it, it's that you throw it in a crucible and you melt it. And as you melt it, the dross or the imperfections within it will rise to the top and you can kind of skim that bad boy off. And then you can let it cool and you can let it run for a little while. And then you're going to take it and you're going to throw it back in the crucible, melt it again. And guess what? There's some more of that dross that just keeps coming on up to the top. In another area, he describes it in, in what I'm going to say. He uses the word fuller. But what I'm saying is basically someone who makes clothes. And to dye and to purify the clothes, they will have what's called fuller soap, which is, you know, what I would say is the, basically the equivalent of bleach for us. 
And that with that fuller soap, you can continue to clean and clean and clean the garment until you can make it white as snow, as, as the phrase is used. But it's a process. It requires scrubbing. It requires applying the chemicals. It requires going through a little work. It doesn't just come out that way. It requires some work. Even when you look at the making of clothing, like if you're talking about it with a sheep, yeah, you got to shear the sheep in those days, then you got to spin the wool, and then you got to get it to, and there's, there's varying degrees of wool, right? There's a process that that goes through. Then just come out that way. Be nice if it did. I would like one day for the house to just clean itself. That you just walk in and it's there. Nobody had to do it. You know? I would love for inanimate objects one day to become animate and clean themselves. If I could wish for one, like, dystopian thing, that would be it. Now, don't rise up and kill me like the brooms out of Fantasia. I want you just to clean yourself. Clean the house, all right? On its own. Not have to go through any processes. You just good. But that's not the case, right? If you want a clean shower, guess what you got to do? Get down there and scrub it out, right? This, all, all of these examples, actually, I am tying back into the fact that there are traumas and things that happen in our lives. And the whole purpose of them is to refine us. There's issues that we will face. And the whole, ish, the, whole pro, the whole point of them is to refine us. God told us, Jesus told us, you're going to have tribulations. And the reason is, is because it is through the tribulations as we learn that you learn what? Patience. A gracious mercy to refine us to make us better to create us in a little different way to create in us patience and long suffering and mercy because you know what when you go through all these traumas you come out on the other side you come out a more merciful person when you realize when you have suffered you've been wronged you've been treated poorly you've been attacked you've been abused you've lost you've had then all of a sudden you have a compassion you didn't have before. It's a beautiful, refining grace that God has given us in our lives. He's still preserving us. That's still His work. Left to our own, left without Him in those situations, what does it create? Bitterness, hate, wrath. Not mercy and compassion. When you get wronged in the world in the absence of the grace of God, what does it create? Backstabbing, backbiting, maliciousness. So, yeah, he's still preserving us, even with the stuff that's going on. His refining grace is still working in us. So even when false prophets and deceivers come forward to try to persuade us and tell us, hey, you know what, all those wrongs, all those ill things that have happened to you, all that bad stuff, just give up on God. Can't you see it ain't working out for you? This is your fourth round of chemo. Guess what? Give up. God obviously doesn't care about you. He's not going to help you. Look, you've still got cancer. What, where's God in this? You prayed for your kids and they still ran off and left you. Where's God in this? Give up. What good has being a Christian really been for you? So when all these false prophets and deceivers and people come at us and tell us or try to imply to us or even in the other way, try to say, well, obviously, if you're not healthy, wealthy and prospering, then you're just not doing this whole Christian thing right. Even when those kind of false prophets come up and try to whisper in your ear and say, if you just had the right type of faith, then this wouldn't be an issue to you. All that together 
God is warning us through his scripture. He's preserving us by his power to say, don't, don't listen to all that. Listen to what I told you. I told you you're going to have tribulations. And you say, oh, well, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Why couldn't you tell me I was going to have health, wealth, and prosperity? That would be great, you know. Don't worry, I'm going to set you up and you'll never have to have any kind of physical... No. He said, I'm going to put you through some stuff. You're going to go through some stuff. I went through some stuff. Why would you expect you wouldn't go through some stuff? But what I am telling you is that even in all of those situations, every single one of them, I'm still there. I'm still preserving you. I'm still walking with you. In fact, I'll tell you that I've been there and done that. So even as you go through those hard times, I'm going to go, yeah, I know. I know it's tough because I've been there. But guess what? You're going to get through it. You're going to get to the other side. And I will be there with you every step of the way. Preserving his people. Walking alongside them as their high priest. Interceding with them and guiding them through whatever they may face. So... Obviously, we have talked about how this is very proximal, okay? That there's a lot of this that is very proximal to what God is doing in AD 70, okay? The biggest takeaway that you can get from this that we have kind of been reiterating, but I want to kind of put out there so that we can bullet point it and then we can, we can move past it, is number one, God's decision or God's dedication here to his holy, righteous judgment, that's what we need to really grab in the proximal interpretation of this. Because he's talking about this destruction in A.D. 70 of Jerusalem. And you go, why are you doing this? Why would you do this? You know, in fact, that's kind of the apostles kind of cry to Jesus when, Jesus when they go, Hey, Jesus, look at all the grand and glorious buildings we got here on the temple. And Jesus goes, all of them are going to be gone. They're like, what? what? Why? Why would you allow your temple to be destroyed? Because God is dedicated to holiness. And God is a God of judgment against disobedience and ungodliness. In particular with his people that he has called and said, do what I tell you to do. So when they say, you know what, we're going to just kind of push God to the side and we're going to cuddle up to the Romans and we're going to cuddle up to traditionalism and Phariseeism and our own little kind of religious establishment and we're going to kind of do the law but not really because we're going to make it our own law and do what we want to do that keeps us in power, fed, and happy. Jesus says, and you will suffer because of it. And I'm going to wipe you out. I'm cleaning the slate. This temple that you have built for your own purposes, basically... Is not going to be here anymore. So he is committed to righteous judgment against his people when they rebel. And that's what we're seeing play out here. Okay? But also we see God's preservation of his elect people to protect them and direct them in their lives. So those are kind of the two things that you can kind of take away from this section that looks so kind of glum and grim is God is still at work in them. God has not abandoned anybody. He hasn't abandoned Israel when he allows the destruction of his city and temple. He hasn't abandoned them. It's because they have rebelled against him. Okay? So we've got to make sure we understand the purposes behind it. And then the false prophets things that they talked about. He said that there's going to be times that there's going to be false prophets who arrive, false Christ. They're going to do signs and wonders. They're going to have 
these, you know, kind of powers that we have seen come up in other places. We see it in Acts when you go through there. There's Simon Magus, who was this magician who tried to kind of use the power of God and tried to say it was, you know, he was of God and he wanted the power the apostles had and he was doing little magic tricks over here trying to deceive people, trying to get influence, okay? It happened all the time. A group of men who had a woman who could prophesy, used her for evil, wicked... I mean, all this stuff happens, Okay? So he says, there's going to be these people that rise up. They're going to have, they're going to do signs and wonders and you're going to potentially want to follow after them because they just look so doggone convincing. Okay. John in the, in the, in his first epistle. So first John, um, when you look at that, he will tell you in verse, in chapter two, verses 18 through 20 or 22, he'll say, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that antichrists shall Come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. John, in now you're getting you're getting further along into the church history when you're coming to John's epistles, okay? Way on down the road, okay? So here you have him saying, Look, you know Christ told you there was going to be antichrists false Christs, deceivers that were going to come up, and some of them actually came out from our group. So they came out with the kind of what would perceive to be the authority that we as apostles had, okay? But they're not of us. You want to know how they're not of us? Because they're going around saying Jesus ain't the Son of God. So if you have anyone saying that, you can just go ahead and write them off. They are anti-Christ, If you're denying the holiness and the sonship of Jesus, you have strayed from the orthodox truth that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's making that point to say, look, it's it's going on now. It has been going on. It will continue to go on in the future. Okay? So we know just from a historical standpoint and from just a further, deeper, down-the-line biblical standpoint that there were false prophets and deceivers that had risen up at that time. What Jesus is doing here, though, is warning them. He's saying, look, it's going to happen. Don't be deceived. I've told you it's going to happen. I'm telling you exactly how my second coming is going to be. I'm describing to you all the things of the false teachers and the reality of what I'm going to do in the future. Don't be deceived by all of these things, okay? So... When you look, though, at how Jesus is describing his return, I think it's important for us to kind of grab this section of Scripture for about five minutes. There's a lot in it. Jesus makes the point there. I'm telling you these things are going to happen. Don't be deceived. I'm not coming out of the wilderness like John the Baptist did, which was a Jewish kind of tradition that the Messiah would come out of the wilderness He kind of already came out of it once. He's not coming out of it again, okay? So first time was unique. Second time's going to be different, okay? So he already has claimed here, I'm I'm not coming, it's not going to, I'm not coming out of the wilderness. I'm not coming like John in camel's hair and, and baptizing again. That's not, this is not how this is happening, okay? I'm also not coming in a secret chamber. It's not going to be, you got to have the password to get in. 
It's not going to be you better be searching out for me and looking behind every nook and cranny and pulling up rocks and going to caves and knocking on doors and cellars and saying, is the Christ there? Because he says, that's not going to be the case. There's going to be people who will tell you that. Look, anytime someone invites you into a dark room in a basement and tells you they have a secret to tell you, I'm just going to tell you that's a warning, okay? I think that's just universal. I think we, that's stranger danger, okay? Anytime you, I mean, that, we're taught that as kids, right? Someone invites you into their creepy van with some candy, you don't get in, right? That's just kind of a thing. So if someone comes up and says, hey, guess what? I got Christ in the back of my Astro van with the blacked out windows. Just don't believe it, okay? And I know that's kind of silly, but what he's telling me here is he's like, you're going to have these people that are going to be like, oh, yeah, it's a secret thing. The Gnostics came up around this time. Their whole thing was secret learning, secret knowledge. You had to have the right code words. They hid out in basements and cellars and things. They hid out in blacked out astro vans, okay, and drove around and invited people to their secret wisdom of the Messiah, okay? So there was a lot of this very practical, natural stuff that went on. Jesus says, guys, let's be honest. When I'm coming back, that's not how I'm coming back. He said, I'm not sneaking in through the cellar door. And I'm not coming out of the wilderness. To imply that I'm coming out of the wilderness would imply that I'm coming as a man. That I'm coming in the man flesh nature that I came in the first time. Okay? He says that's not how it's going to be. I am transcendent above that. I have been elevated. I ascended to my father. I am glorified. I'm not going to walk out of the wilderness because in my interpretation, if those those glorified, powerful, risen king feet landed in the wilderness, the wilderness would be no more, okay? You see how God came down on the mountain at Sinai. The mountain was almost incapable of holding him, okay? So with a glorified, risen Savior coming down and walking out of the forest, I don't see the forest lasting very long, okay? So the first thing is the man flesh nature. He says, I'm not coming back as a dude. I'm not walking out of the wilderness. Are you kidding me? I'm way past all that. Did you not see me ascend? Okay, now I know they hadn't yet. They're going to. But did you not see me ascend? Did you not hear the angels say in Acts chapter 1, the way he left is the way he's coming back. Okay, it's not out of the wilderness. It's out of the clouds. The second thing is he says, I'm not coming in some secret cabin. Okay. I'm not coming out of the basement. I'm not coming out of the cellar. I'm not coming in some kind of secret way. You're not going to have to have a password to find me. No. How does Jesus describe his second coming? For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the second coming of the Son of Man be. Now, again, I think it is a beautiful word picture that he uses there. Number one... It's beautiful and it's just simple practicalities. Nobody misses lightning, right? Nobody is like, oh, I didn't see that. Blinding flash of death and destruction extend across the sky and scare the pants off of everybody and shake the house and knock things off the walls. And Nobody misses lightning, right? Does anybody? Does anybody miss the thunder that comes along with it? Lightning is so powerful that it rips the sound barrier and shakes the wall sometimes. Nobody misses it. It's not a quiet thing. So when he says that I'm coming back and it's going to be like the lightning shining out of the east to the west, it's not something that's going to be missable, if you can use that word. It's not something that people are going to look at and go, huh, what was that? 
Oh, that's just the second coming of Jesus. Don't worry, it's not a big deal. Just, it's not going to be missable. The second thing that I think is interesting and amazing about it is think about how you view lightning in and of itself. It is like primordial energy and power. There's nothing that matches it. It is pure electrical power that springs forth in some amazing scientific ways and springs forth with power that is beyond anything else that's naturally occurring. With heat and fervency and light and, I mean, just everything about it announces itself. There's nothing hidden about it. And you don't look at lightning and go, oh, it's just lightning. No, everybody's like, don't be on the ball fields, get in your house. Um, you know, we were talking about this last night. Make sure you got lightning rods on your buildings or else, boom, it goes up in smoke. I mean, there's a lot of things about lightning that we fear, that create awe. I mean, how many of you have been like driving along a highway and watching a lightning storm play out around you? And they're like, whoa, that's crazy. And then you're waiting to see how long the thunder hits. And then the thunder hits you. And think of this too. How many of you have been inside when thunder hits or have been outside when thunder hits? When thunder hits outside, isn't it like, oh my gosh, I think the world is falling apart. Like when you get a close thunder hit by you and you feel the reverberations from it, it's like miles away, you're still getting hit by it. It's crazy the power that is within there. And Jesus says, that's me. When I come back, that's me. I'm not coming back as some kind of secret sorcerer hiding out in a basement. I'm coming back like the lightning you see. I am the one that spoke lightning into existence. I created this world. And by that same power that you take awe at, you're going to see me come back. And when I come back, it's not going to be a subtle, quiet thing. When the Creator, the Almighty, the reborn, remade, glorified Creator of heaven and earth comes back to His earth and His power and His glory, it is not going to be a subtle thing. He's going to come back with fanfare, with glory, with power, just like lightning streaking across the sky. There will be thundering and booming and loudness and heat and power and every knee is going to fall on the ground because of the fear and the awe of what they see. That's how he's coming back. That's the picture that you're getting. That's what he is explaining here is look at how my coming is going to be. Don't be deceived by these goofy people telling you that I'm out in the wilderness. I'm not. I'm telling you when I come back, you're going to know when I come back. Okay. I'm going to make my presence known throughout all of my creation. Look real quick at Revelations chapter 19. Revelations chapter 19 gives the picture, which again, as you're digging through Revelations, you have to go, okay, when was this? How was this? Who was this kind of a deal? But Revelations chapter 19, 11 through 16 gives a picture of this man who I just think all descriptions and all other possibilities point just to Jesus, okay? There's only one guy that this could fit, okay? Listen to how he comes in. This is when you're looking at all the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they're described. You go through the list, and then all of a sudden, you got this guy that comes riding in. And it says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture that was dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with an rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's only one person that that fits. And that entrance was not subtle, was it? You get this kind of Lord of the Rings-esque picture, okay, of this man sitting on a white horse with an army behind him marching from heaven in a glorious display of power with a name written on him, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, with many crowns of, upon his head, with a sword and a rod in ruling might and power and glory, and there is no mistaking his coming, okay? You can't miss this, all right? This, this is not something you're going to have to TiVo or DVR. I don't even know what we're doing now. TiVo or DVR, this is not something you're going to have to record and watch later. You want to know why? Because everybody is going to bear witness when the heavens are ripped open and the King of King and Lord of Lords rides in on his horse. It's just going to be seen, okay? Amen. So this is the second coming he's describing, okay? This is the power and intensity and visibility that he's describing. He's warning them proximally. You're going to have people in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years who are going to come and say, oh, yeah, I'm the Christ. I've come back. Y'all come follow me. And he said, don't believe him. You want to know why? Because you will know when I come back. You will know. You will see it. They'll see it too. Okay? In other areas, he describes it that they're going to be calling for the mountains to drop on them and hide them and crush them and destroy them because they fear the return of the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. So then he says that where you see the carcass, you'll see the vultures gathered. Again, this is just a simple, practical explanation. He says, look, guys, you can look down the road and you can see eagles or you can see vultures is what he's describing here, gathered around a carcass, okay, eating a carcass. When you see them all huddled up on the road, okay, you know there's something dead there. All right, they're not hanging out there because it's a cool place to be. They're hanging out there because there's food. So what he's saying is you're going to see the vultures gathering, okay? You're going to see the signs. You're going to see events happening that you're going to go, hmm, something's a little off here. Something's going in a direction. When you see the abomination of desolation set up, the vultures are circling, get out of Judea. There's something coming. Something dead's going to be there, okay? So he's saying make sure you take notice of these things. Don't be deceived by people who will tell you otherwise because I, the Son of God, am telling you this is how it's going to happen. I really wanted to get into Joel, but I do not have time to do that. Next time, we're going to look at sections 29 through um, probably all the way to 51 if we can. But we'll look at the next section next time. What we're going to look at is how he kind of goes into further explanation of these kind of signs and wonders you're going to see happen. 
the main thing you want to grab from this is we're about to kind of slide away from a purely proximal interpretation into one that's more distal, second coming into the world. Okay? So in the next sections, he's going to start describing some events that are going to take place that ties to the prophet Joel. Okay? And it also ties back to Isaiah chapter 2. And both of these areas kind of describe these, these coming events in time that will not be completely fulfilled or could not possibly be completely fulfilled in A.D. 70. So may the Lord kind of bless us to continue to read through this. And the main takeaway that we want to get from today is how is our Lord coming back with power and glory? The one that we look to to preserve us and take care of us and deliver us and walk with us through the rest of our lives here on this earth is the one who's going to come back riding the white horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh. That's the one who tells us over and over again, I'm with you even to the end. Take that verse. Remember that verse in the coming weeks and months. I'm with you even to the end. Jesus is never going away from us and he's never abandoning us. And he's not some genie in the bottle. He is the all-conquering savior and creator of the world. So may God bless us to trust in that.